This morning we will be looking at the end of chapter 2 of Luke. Our text this morning will actually begin at verse 40 and will take us through the end of the chapter to verse 52. If you would please now give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 2. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that You would use Your Word, that by the power of Your Word, You would change us. You would help us to understand who You are, who we are, and our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, there never was one like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures testify to this. No man ever spoke like this man. No one had authority like He had authority. No one performed the works that He performed. This is such a unique story that the church took several hundred years to try and exactly figure out who Jesus was. No, I don't mean the broad contours. I don't mean whether or not He was the Savior. I mean exactly what does it mean 
for Jesus to be fully man and yet fully God. To be on some level just like us and on another level so completely different than we are. This morning, Luke, in his typical fashion of telling us stories to illustrate a point that he wants to make, is going to give us a vignette, a glimpse of what it means to know that Jesus is fully man and fully God. That Jesus can sympathize with His people and yet Jesus knows exactly who He is and the work that He has been given to do. And so, this morning we will see different aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ in this very famous story of Jesus in the temple. We will see first the importance of the ordinary. Too often in our lives we brush off the ordinary things as not worth our attention. But there is an importance in the ordinary aspect of life. And then secondly, we will see an extraordinary event An extraordinary event that gives us a glimpse into who Jesus is. And then third, we will see the one and only Jesus, singular in His person and His character. The ordinary, the extraordinary, and the one and only, all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin then by looking at the ordinary aspects to our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You know, those terms that are contradictory within themselves. Sophomore, wise fool, military intelligence. These these terms that you look at them and they don't seem to make sense consistently. And we look at this and we say, well, Jesus ordinary that can't be you're in a church don't you know you're supposed to be saying how different jesus is you're a pastor you're preaching don't downplay jesus but you see i'm not and neither is luke because you see luke here is telling us that there is an ordinary aspect to jesus and that is critical to who he is there is a real humanity to jesus jesus had to grow up. Now, we can forget about this, can't we? Because, after all, we don't know much about Jesus' youth. This is the only story that we have from His growing years. As I've said before, there is many a mother and a father that wishes there were reams of incidents that describe how obedient Jesus was to His parents. As a matter of fact, this is such a fancy of people that one of the ways that you can tell a false gospel is they're filled with fanciful stories of what Jesus did when he was a teen. How Jesus got bored, so he fashioned birds out of dirt and made them alive. How kids picked on Jesus, so he zapped them here and there. But you see, we don't know much about the humanity of Jesus, but Luke makes sure we understand that it is real. And it it actually bookends our passage here in verse 40 and in verse 52. Do you see it? And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. 
And then in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew. If you believe the Bible, you must believe that. And if you believe that, you must understand, as hard as it is to wrap your mind around it, that Jesus had human limitations. Imagine him growing up, learning how to use utensils and not make a mess of himself when he ate. Imagine him learning to walk. Imagine him learning to read. Imagine him learning to do things around his father's shop. You see, Jesus had to grow and mature. And yet in all of this, we cannot forget that Jesus was without sin. You see, the problem is our uniform experience with growth is with sin. Isn't it? It marks all of our lives. We grow up and we do things we ought not. We say things we should not. And so we think that's just a normal, ordinary part of growth. But it isn't. Growing requires maturity, but it does not require sin. Jesus didn't just grow in stature, in dexterity. He also had to learn. Do you see that? Luke says it twice. He says, Jesus increased in wisdom. And he actually, in these last two chapters, takes us through a word picture of Jesus growing and becoming more mature. When we are first introduced to Jesus, He is described as an infant, a babe. And then earlier, He is described as a little child. And then He becomes a child or a youth. And then at the end, in verse 52, He is simply Jesus. He is growing, not only in stature, but in his mind. I think sometimes we have a false impression of Jesus that we view him the way we view these genius babies on the commercials. That Jesus might have been in diapers. He might have had to have someone feed him, but he probably could have figured out how to use a smartphone and could have traded stocks if he wanted to. And probably at any moment that he wanted to, recited off two or three books of the Bible from memory. The Bible tells us that was not true. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom. There were things Jesus didn't know. There were limitations that he faced. Jesus, young people, had to learn math. He had to struggle with math, with language, He had to do homework. It didn't just all come to him naturally. He faced limitations. Do you face limitations? Well, you see, in that sense, you're like Jesus. Well, Jesus is like you. You see, he is very man. And that is not just a term and a phrase. That means that Jesus has the experiences that you have. This is important because one who must sympathize with us and who must represent us must be like us. And that's what Luke tells us. Jesus was a person, a man with real relationships. He had a relationship with God, His Father. But also, 
Jesus was not anti-social. I think sometimes we think that because Jesus was opposed by the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others in His teaching, that it is part and parcel of being a Christian to be annoying and to be difficult and to have people oppose us at all times. But Luke says in verse 52 that Jesus grew not only in favor with God, but He grew in favor with man. Jesus knew how to say hello and have conversations. Jesus knew how to ask people how their day was and if they were feeling better. He knew how to help people with things they needed. This is an important part of who He is. Not because He is God, although He is, but because He is also the perfect man. And you see, that is the calling that we are called to. To be men in the generic sense, men and women like Jesus was a man. To have real relationships. To have interactions with others. You see, Jesus was just following God's Word. The Proverbs say in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You see, Solomon here says, Understand and keep the Lord's commandments. Have love and faithfulness. Why? So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and of man. Jesus was living out God's Word. But there is a realness to Jesus that goes even beyond His own humanity and limitations. It comes in His family life as well. And we can understand this. We know how families work. Sometimes better. Sometimes, if you'll forgive my grammar, not so better. There are times when there are challenges and difficulties. But there is a tenor to our life that sets the pace. And this was true with Joseph and Mary. Luke describes this for us in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, we already know that Mary and Joseph were ordinary people in an ordinary family. They were not wealthy. They were not powerful. They lived, as we remember, out in the boondocks. They didn't live in Jerusalem near the temple. They couldn't even afford the normal sacrifices. They had to use the poverty clause. They were an ordinary family. But do you notice, they were not careless. You see, sometimes I think we are tempted to think if we are ordinary, there is nothing important. You see, there is a difference between extraordinary and important. They are not synonyms. Ordinary things can be very important. And that is true here of this family. They were not careless. They made it their habit to travel to Jerusalem each year for the Passover. Luke tells us this. He says every year they did it. And he even uses a verb that is frequent in its tense. It was their custom. Over and over again, they went to Jerusalem for the feast 
of the Passover. Now, this was part of a larger habit that they had to be faithful to the Lord and to His will revealed to them. Oftentimes, we have heard it said that there is nothing important about religion, that all that is important is our relationship with Jesus. And I think that misses the point. Because you see, true religion is founded upon our relationship with Jesus. And if we have a relationship with the Lord, it causes us to do certain things, to think certain ways, to believe and to act. And this is what happened with Joseph and Mary. Because they had a relationship with the living God, because God had spoken to them, because God was vital and important in their life, they made it their part and parcel to do what God had commanded. And they didn't take up excuses. You know there was hypocrisy back in Bible days, don't you? You see, many today use that as an excuse not to read the Bible, not to be with God's people. Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, that's good. It was then too. We're going to see them in technicolor all throughout the Gospel of Luke. People who ask Jesus questions only trying to trip Him. People who try and manipulate and threaten parents of invalids. All sorts of people who are only concerned about their own well-being and wealth. And Joseph and Mary are not bothered at all by that. They do not take the modern mentality that would say, well, you know, there's all sorts of corruption in the temple. And the Romans are in charge. And they're not following God's law. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. No reason at all to go to the Passover. Let's just stay amongst ourselves and be pure. No. They went, didn't they? They went all the time, didn't they? Do you know what else they did as they were going all the time? They were teaching Jesus. That was important. Think about that for a moment. We just said Jesus had to grow. We just said Jesus had to learn. Who Better to learn from than his parents. Parents, there are some of you sitting here this morning wondering how your children will turn out. Wondering if what you have done has done any good at all. You bring them to church. You bring them to Sunday school. You pray for them. You advise them. And you wonder if anything is sticking. If it's not just going in one ear and out the next. But you see, Luke tells us that that is your job. The sticking is not your problem. It's God's problem. You see, your call as parents is to put your children in the way of grace and to let God take it from there. This is what Mary and Joseph did. Jesus would understand. We're not very wealthy. Dad's going to take a full week off of work. And we're going to travel to Jerusalem, which is really expensive. And we're going to do this because there's a feast. And we're going to go to this feast because God wrote in His Word hundreds of years ago that we should do this. And you know, some of our neighbors could care less. They're going on vacation instead. They're spending money on a brand new donkey instead. 
But I know mom and dad. And I know they love me. And I know they love the Lord. So this must be important. Do you see how then the ordinary takes a level of importance upon it that almost makes it extraordinary? This is the life of Jesus and His family. Well, they go and they go down into Jerusalem. Jesus is 12 years old. Joseph and Mary, in their good job of training Jesus, before He would have His his bar mitzvah ceremony, his son of the commandment ceremony at 13, it was often advised to take the young man at age 12 and to walk him through his paces of all that religion understood and had to offer. Kind of a year of combination Sunday school, VBS, seminary, and boot camp. And you see, Joseph and Mary wanted Jesus to know God's Word. And they wanted Him to practice God's Word. And they take Him here. And then something extraordinary happens. Because, of course, it's Jesus. And so what happens is, after spending a full week here at the Passover, they begin to gather up and to go back home. And they're separated From Jesus, verse 43, Luke tells us, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And His parents did not know it. But supposing Him to be in the group, they searched for Him. Now, you're already writing the story in your mind. I'm going to rewrite it for you from the text. The first mistake you're going to make is, what on earth are Mary and Joseph doing? How could they leave their kid? Um, Like that's never happened to you. At our church in Clinton, Mississippi, where we were, there was a family with a, with a large number of kids. To tell you the truth, I can't even remember how many now. It was 9, 10, or 11. And they had one of these huge passenger vans. And getting in and out of church was a chore because the children ranged from age 16 or 17 down to babies. And so what they'd have to do is get all of the kids in this huge passenger van and go off from church. Well, you know what would happen. The first one Sunday, what happened was, if they had ten children, only nine made it into the van. And one was left behind. And you say to yourself, how could they possibly leave a child? Well, when you've got a crowd that big, and you're trying to get everybody moving, and you don't have a system, mistakes can happen. Right? After that week, there was a buddy count-off system incorporated into that family. You had to make sure everybody was there before we left. And so, this is what's happening here. Joseph and Mary aren't careless. They're traveling in a huge caravan. The word here that Luke uses means all together on the road people. That's what you would do because if you traveled by yourself, you would get mugged on the road. And so you traveled in a huge group. Men, women, children, villagers, aunts, uncles, brother-in-laws, all together. Now, you could just imagine that, can't you? Now I want you to imagine children in this kind of a crowd. And if you think what happened was there was mom and dad and sister and brother right next to them all the time that they were getting ready to leave, then you don't live in the real world. The kids are playing. They're running around. They're looking at last things. They're doing things. It might even be that 
very likely the ladies would travel in one pack, as it were, and the men in another. The men want to talk about sports. The ladies want to talk about all of the shops that they saw and all the gorgeous clothing. And the men don't want to be within a 100 feet of that. And so you can imagine Joseph saying, well, I'm sure Jesus is with Mary. And you can imagine Mary saying, I'm sure he's with Joseph. And you could understand why they would say it, because Jesus is the emblem of a responsible youth. He's not known for doing wrong things. As a matter of fact, he has never done a wrong thing. Ever. So you could certainly understand that. And so they travel off, and a day goes by. Now you wonder, why does a day go by? Well, what happens at the end of the day? Yes, you get hungry. And so what they do is they gather up all together around a big meal, and they look, and they say, where's Jesus? And Joseph says, I thought he was with you. And Mary says, no, I thought he was with you. And then together they say, I'm sure he's with Aunt Verna. Let's go find her. Maybe he's with Cousin Tommy. Now, you can imagine this. Have you ever had this happen to you? I have. I've been in a department store. You know where all the racks of clothing, where they spin around, and there's racks and racks, and you can barely walk? And I had one of the kids with me, and I was sure they were right there. I turned around. I couldn't find them. And you know the panic that sets in. What's happened? Somebody taking them? Where are they gone? How am I going to find them? What am I going to tell Deb? I, I, I lost I lost a kid. And you start running around, right? And you're not very efficient when you're doing that. It's like, forgive the phrase, a chicken with its head cut off, right? That's probably what's happening. What do we do? Where do we go? What do we do? And you can imagine they said to themselves, okay, listen. What we need to do is we need to go back. Because if we did leave Jesus behind, we know Jesus. He never does anything wrong, ever. He would know the right thing to do would be to go someplace safe and wait for us. So let's go back. And so then they travel back to Jerusalem. Now they've been out how long? One full day. How long does it take to get back, class? One full day. How many days is that? Two. That's important. Because you see, I think sometimes we rush into this text and when they find Jesus and three days have gone by, we think, who are these fools? Jerusalem's not that big. They're walking around the city for three days. No, they weren't. They went out one day. They came back a day. And then they spent one day looking for Him. And so they begin this search. And they search, Luke tells us, in vivid phrases continually and everywhere. They're looking in every place that you could possibly look. Now, I don't know where the nooks and crannies where boys would be in Jerusalem at the turn of the millennium, from B.C. to A.D. But I can think in my youth where you would look is video game arcades and pizza shops and ice cream shops and donut shops. Sports stores and collecting cards stores. That's where you would look. And so that's where I think Joseph and Mary started to look. Every place that a normal 12-year-old boy would be. But Jesus isn't in the donut shop. He's not eating a slice of pizza. 
He's not playing Frogger. They can't find him anywhere. And so nearing the end of the day, they say, well, you know, Jesus really enjoyed our time here in Jerusalem. He asked all kinds of questions about the Passover. He was reading his Bible everywhere we went. I think we ought to go to the temple. I think Jesus might be there. And so they gather themselves up and they go and they come upon Jesus at the temple. And and Luke's phrasing is just wonderful. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple. There he is. It's a point in time. They're seized with his presence. And Jesus has been all the time, Luke says, sitting, listening, and asking questions. Jesus has been here the whole time. He hasn't done anything wrong. He didn't sneak away when he wasn't supposed to. He wasn't in a place where he wasn't supposed to. He just wanted to get more of God's Word. Now, that puts a little bit of a different spin on the story, doesn't it? It's like when you go upstairs and your kids are supposed to be in bed and the light is on and you are all set to bring up a fury and you open the door and your kid is sitting in bed reading his Bible. How can you get angry? Right? You see, this is what Jesus has done. He wants more of God. You see, this was an opportunity that he saw. He had teaching here that he wouldn't get in Nazareth. There were trained teachers of the Word. And if we can also imagine, what has happened after the Passover has concluded? All of the people who asked the questions have left. You know what that's like in a classroom setting, don't you? We had a phrase for this I was reminded a week or two ago in law school. When you start classes, there are a few people in each class that raise their hand for every single question. We have a name for them. We call them gunners. And then what happens is the first set of exams come in grades... And then they don't raise their hand anymore. And a whole group of other people begin to raise their hands because they think they know it all. This is what would have happened during the Passover. People would have come from hither and yon and come in to try and ask the most brilliant questions of the most brilliant rabbis. But now they've gone. And now Jesus can actually interact with these rabbis. Now there's something else that you have to correct your way of thinking. All of us come to this passage and what we picture is Jesus standing up, perhaps on a stool to make him taller, lecturing the rabbis. He's the teacher. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say Jesus was arrogant and took over the authority. It does not. It says he was sitting in the middle of them, answering questions, and asking questions. He was learning, just like Luke said he had to. He was in an interactive format. We call this the Socratic method often, don't we? Back and forth, asking questions to learn more about the Bible and about God. But you see, Jesus also is Jesus. 
As ordinary as we want to make Him, we cannot because there is an extraordinary nature to Him. And so, as He asks questions, you can imagine the rabbis thinking, I wish He would ask easier questions. Who is this guy? This boy knows all sorts of things. He knows the connection between obscure verses. He doesn't just have the talking points. He really gets into the depth of things. And when we ask questions, He answers thoughtfully. Who is this young man? And the people around him are all amazed. Now this also gives us hope, doesn't it? Because although we are not Jesus, it tells us that we have potential. We can understand God's Word, and even our young people can understand God's Word. There is a reason why in the organization of Christ Church we have one worship service. We don't have a preteen service and a teen service. No. We have one service. Because we trust that teens and preteens have potential. They can understand God's Word. They can learn from God's Word. And even with our youngest children, our hope and our goal is to incorporate them as soon as possible in an active way in the public corporate worship of God. Don't short your young people. They can learn. They can know. Well, Joseph and Mary come upon Jesus, they see this spectacle, and they hear Jesus interacting, and they are astonished as well. But then, reality creeps back in. You see, for more than a decade before this, life has been very normal for Joseph and Mary. There was, of course, the angels, and the visitation, and the announcement. And then there was the trip to Egypt. And then after that, they settled back in for a quiet nine or ten years. And now Mary has gotten into normal mode. And she looks at Jesus. She has forgotten Gabriel's message, as it were. She's lost for a moment who Jesus is. And she becomes every one of you, Mom. She's even got the phrase, doesn't she? Jesus... Your father and I are concerned. Why are you causing us all this anguish and distress? That's the way Luke describes it. We've been searching for you in great distress. The word there is, it's an awful word. It means pain and anguish, almost torture. You can imagine, she's saying, you're driving me crazy, son. I almost had a heart attack. We've been looking everywhere for you. Why did you do this? And you can imagine, she might possibly, as some people are known to, have gotten just a little bit emotional in the moment. Fear has taken grip of her. And she says to him, Your father and I have been looking. And then, out of this extraordinary event, Luke gives us a picture of why Jesus is the one and only. Jesus looks at her in a very calm and collected 
voice, he says, why would you have even had to look for me? Now again, we need to correct our presupposition in the text because our teens would have answered, well, why would you be looking for me anyway? And that's how we would have answered as teens. And so we think this is a smart aleck reply from Jesus. But remember who Jesus is. He is the one who is without sin. There is no guile in him here, as Peter says. This is no smart aleck retort. He's honestly looking at Mary and saying, why would you possibly need to look for me? Wouldn't you know that I would have to be here? Wouldn't you know that I would be safe? Wasn't I kept safe when Herod tried to kill all of the children? Wasn't I kept safe when we traveled all the way to Egypt? Why wouldn't I be safe now? This is something that will help us. You see, the future is scary, isn't it? Do you know what it's going to bring? What illnesses? What financial challenges? What wars or rumors of wars? I don't either. But what I can do is I can face the future looking back at God's past mercies to me. And I can extrapolate that the same God who was in my past is the same God who will be in my future. So any difficulty that's before you, don't be frozen with fear at all of the things that are coming at you. Think, well, this happened last year and I didn't know how I'd get through it and God got me through it. This happened three years ago and I had no clue what to do and God got me through it. You see, we're not told to try and predict and understand the future. We're told to know the one who holds the future. And that's God. And then Jesus answers her. And there's a very interesting take here. Again, it is not sarcastic. It is a correction. It is a reality. Jesus says, why would you have possibly had to look for me? Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, think of the irony there. What did Mary just say? Your father and I were worried sick. And Jesus says, I'm in my Father's house. Jesus knows. And Jesus declares who He is. He's not pushing aside Joseph. What He is saying is, is that I know, Mother, why I am here. I know why I was sent. I know what I am to do. And the amazing thing is, And you can spend this afternoon doing it. This is the first time in the Bible in which without some form of qualification, a person calls God my Father. Jesus is creating an entire new category of personal relationship with God based upon who He is. He actually perfectly understands where He is. He perfectly understands who He is. And it's too much for Mary, isn't it? She doesn't understand what He means. She says, I'll have to think on that a bit. And this defeats the way people 
out in the world view Jesus. They think, well, Jesus was just a good teacher and either he became a megalomaniac or else someone else tried to push on him that he was God. No, Luke says right here, when he was 12 years old, he knew exactly who he was and exactly what he had to do. Because you see, this phrase, didn't you know I had to be in my father's? There's, there's a blank, and it's probably most appropriately filled in with in my father's house, but it could also mean in my father's business, about my father's work. And that shouldn't surprise us about Jesus either. He's right where he should be. He delights in God's Word. He delights to hear God's Word. And he submits to God's will. You see, all of Jesus' life is about a divine compulsion. It's against our way of thinking. You see, we think true freedom is being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want it. And Jesus, the one who is the definition of freedom, says that freedom is following God's will. He submits to God's will. And then he does something else that cements this for us. He goes back and he submits to Mary and Joseph. Think about that. He is the creator of the universe. He already knows more about the Bible and God than both of them do. He's still to grow, but yet he submits to them. Why? Isn't Jesus more important than them? Shouldn't they submit to Jesus? Isn't it all about ability? No. You see, here is another vignette in which Luke shows us what the fifth commandment is all about. It's not about ability. It's not about innate power. It is about the relationships that God has placed us in. And so a child here submits to the authority that he is under, the parent. Children, God has given you parents. You must submit to them. Not because they're right. Not because they tell you you ought to. Not even because the pastor says so, but because God has given you that relationship and has subscribed it in His Word. Parents, that doesn't mean kids need to do every single thing you tell them to do. Jesus didn't. He stayed behind. He did not sin. He was about God's business. But you see, there is a web of relationships that we have And Jesus, being truly a man, had those as well. You see, Jesus delighted in every single way to follow the Lord's will, whether it was the work that God had given him to do, the understanding of God's Word, or submitting to his parents, because ultimately it was all about obeying God, the Father. Obeying in all things, even to the death. Obeying in all things that we might have life. Obeying that we might have grace. That's who Jesus is. He is the one and only. There is none like Him. There never will be one like Him. Perfect in grace. Fully man. Fully God. This, dear people, 
is your Jesus. Let's pray.